Luke chapter 6, verse 37 down through 42. This is the passage in which we find the world's favorite verse. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take, out the log, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus gave these commands as part of his Sermon on the Plain. He had just finished telling his disciples how to love their enemies by offering mercy and grace to the very people who treated them with persecution, and abuse, and hatred. Here, Jesus continues talking about a godly response to sin. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, like many things that Jesus said, these verses are often misunderstood, especially that opening command. It's one of the few verses of Scripture that virtually every unbeliever is familiar with. It's interesting, isn't it? Speaking to an unbeliever, and all of a sudden, when you get into a discussion about something that is particularly sensitive in their life, King James English just starts to flow. (laughs) Judge not, lest ye, ye be judged. No doubt this is because our culture considers judging people to be the ultimate sin. Nobody likes to be judged. People want to set their own standards and to adjust them as they go so that they never fail to meet them. The last thing they want is to have someone else telling them that what they're doing may be wrong. Sometimes they use this verse to tell other people just to leave them alone, especially Christians. Judge not, they say, 
or you'll be judged. Now, of course, when we come to this passage and we recognize that there are many who use it improperly, that does not mean that there is not a proper use of it. Obviously, Jesus meant something when he spoke these words. We need to find out what that is. What did Jesus actually mean when he spoke these words? What is the proper understanding? What is the proper response of these words of Jesus? Well, he didn't mean, of course, that we are never called to render judgment. There are many life situations that demand a decision. Jesus goes on in his own ministry later in this gospel to talk about proper judgment. So we've got to make a distinction between judgment, which is improper, and judgment, which is proper. Parents are called to make judgments when their children have a conflict. Teachers assess their students, managers evaluate employees, elders decide cases of discipline in the church, judges render verdicts in courts of law. There are all kinds of proper judgments that we have to make, and we make them every day. The rest of the Bible makes it clear that to judge not is not a prohibition against any and every form of judgment. Whenever we're called to make moral, theological decisions, it is irresponsible not to judge. When we're dealing with issues that the scripture is very clear about, it is proper and good and right to judge. To be able to say, yes, this is right, this is good, this is evil, this is wrong. There are times when we're called, however, not to make judgments. Sometimes it's simply not our place. We all have our opinions about what people ought to do, how they ought to be treated, but before we make any judgments, we need to consider whether it's our place to make those judgments. We need to ask ourselves what our role is. If it's not our place to judge, and it often isn't, then we ought to keep our opinions to ourselves. In fact, when we're dealing with opinions, unless somebody asks us, we ought to keep our opinions to ourselves. That's a big part of what Jesus is talking about here. Overstepping bounds. Making not the word of God the basis of our judgments. And when we talk about the word of God being the basis of our judgments, we're not necessarily talking about judging. We're simply making decisions. We're we're discriminating We're recognizing what is true and what is not. It's when our opinions become issues in which we want to impose our own understandings upon others 
that may not even have a basis in the scripture, that's when judging really becomes a problem. We run the risk of overstepping our bounds, even putting ourselves in the place of God, who alone has the right to judge. Every judgment that we make is kind of a delegated judgment. If we're judging properly, we're judging rightly, we are doing so only as a reflection of what we understand from the Word of God. There are times when we have to judge, and times when we should not judge at all. But in this passage, as Jesus is discussing these issues, he's mainly concerned about the heart. Because it all starts there. Actions are an outworking of the heart. The words we speak are an outgrowth of the heart. When he tells us not to judge, he's telling us not to treat people unfairly or unjustly in the court of our own opinion. In a word, he's telling us not to be judgmental. You understand, of course, one can exercise proper judgment without being judgmental. A judgmental person is someone who reaches unjust conclusions about someone else's motives. He is someone who is quick to criticize, usually putting things in the worst possible light, but slow to forgive. Someone who is judgmental lacks any sense of proportion. Small offenses receive the same angry response that ought to be reserved for the most egregious of sins. Instead, What Jesus is doing here is calling us to forgive others and offer them what we spoke about earlier. Offer them grace. A generous grace. A grace that is greater than any sin that we have ever contemplated and which anyone else has ever committed. Jesus is drawing a contrast then between two attitudes of the heart. One is judging and condemning, the other is giving and forgiving. Most people are quick to criticize and slow to give other people room to grow. But Jesus calls us to have an attitude of open acceptance. This is the attitude that he himself took in laying down his life for sin and for sinners. Now, in the same way that he has forgiven us, he calls upon us to forgive others. He calls his disciples to do more than simply forgive, however. He also calls us to give. 
It's one thing to forgive people for what they have done to us. It's another to take that a step further and to do something to bless them. This is what Jesus has done for us. He's forgiven our sins through the cross. But more than that, he has granted us the free gift of everlasting life. And now he calls us to give the people who wrong us more grace than they deserve. Because every one of us has received more grace than we deserve. Because the amount of, des- of grace that we deserve is zero. It's actually negative. Because right? we deserve condemnation. This is another test of true discipleship. Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples about discipleship. If you've forgiven your enemies, now go the next step and give them grace. To help his disciples have the right attitude toward fellow sinners, not condemning but forgiving, Jesus says that we too will come under judgment. If we have a judgmental spirit, then we ourselves will be condemned. If we give and forgive, then we will receive God's blessing in return. It is measure for measure. God will apply the same standard to us that we apply to others. All Too often, the people who render the harshest judgments and make fewest allowances are people who come on Sunday mornings and sit in places like this. As if we ourselves were not in constant need of saving grace. As if we ourselves had not received undeserved mercy from God. This was the problem with some forms of fundamentalism which arose early in the 20th century as a response to liberalism in theology. Fundamentalists faithfully defended core Christian doctrines like the inerrancy of Scripture and the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and substitutionary atonement, the resurrection, Christ's visible return, But some fundamentalists had a harsh and condemning spirit towards people who did not follow every jot and tittle of their man-made rules for Christian living. And sadly, the same thing is happening in the church today. It happens when we're overconfident in the conclusions that we reach about other people's problems without fully knowing their situation. It happens when we think that we have the ability to judge other people's motives, wrongly assuming that we know why they did what they did. It happens when we withhold forgiveness from people who have hurt us. It happens when we keep our distance from Christians who are struggling with sins that may not be an issue for us. It happens when we criticize the sins that other people commit more than we repent of our own sins. This is not the way that Jesus taught us to treat people. And when we do, it shouldn't surprise us that people want nothing to do with the gospel. 
the way we act, the way we speak, is a reflection, whether we like it or not, on how the world views the gospel. Now, that's not an excuse for unbelief. It's not to let unbelievers off the hook, so to speak. We're speaking in human terms here. God can overcome all of that. And I often pray that he does, that my life will not get in the way of the gospel. But our lives need to be in harmony with the gospel. When we talk about a gospel of grace, a gospel in which God pours out his undeserved favor upon sinners and then live lives and speak in such a way that we deny grace, then our speech and our lives are not conforming to the gospel. When everything out of our mouths is the condemnation of what is going on in the world. The condemnation of what we see happening in the lives of our brothers and sisters. We're forgetting the hope of grace. We're forgetting that God changes people by his grace. We're forgetting that that sin which holds people in bondage is deadly. And that the people that we are condemning are dying. They're paying the consequence for their sin. That should move us to pity rather than judgment. We still recognize that sin is sin. That it's wrong. But we don't do it from a position of someone who is up here looking down upon everyone else. Because there are others who could sit in a seat higher than mine. And look down upon the things that I struggle with. And when that happens, I hope that there is grace. The irony, of course, is that Jesus gives us something else entirely. He knows the whole truth about the full extent of our sin. Jesus knows my sin better than I do. And if I didn't know that he loved me, if I was not entirely confident that I belong to him and he is a forgiving Savior, if I didn't know that he is full of grace, the fact that he knows my sin better than I do would terrify me. Because what I know about my sin is bad enough. And he knows more. And yet he reaches out to us 
in mercy, granting forgiveness through his death on the cross and offering eternal life through the power of his resurrection. And now the way that we treat others ought to demonstrate the mercy that we have received in Christ. The grace we give flows from the grace that we have received and the grace that we still need day by day by day. But if we fail to treat people as Christ says we should, then he says, you're going to come under that same judgment with which you judge others. What Jesus says at the end of verse 38 can be taken positively or negatively. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. If we judge people with harsh harsh condemnation, then we ourselves will be condemned. But the beginning of the verse makes it clear that Jesus expects something better from his disciples. The picture is entirely positive. The picture is a lapful of blessing. Here's how we need to understand this ancient custom of good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. The seller crouches on the ground with the measure, think of a measuring cup, in his lap. And he fills the measure first, three quarters full, and he gives it a good shake. He makes the grain settle down. And then he fills the measure to the top and gives it another shake. And next he he presses the corn together with, with both hands. And finally he heaps it up into a cone, tapping it carefully to press the grains together. From time to time he bores a hole in the cone and pours out a few more grains into it until there is literally no more room in the measure for a single grain. In fact, there is excess grain that comes down into his lap. That's what Jesus is describing here. In this way, the purchaser is guaranteed an absolutely full measure. Cannot hold more. This is the superabundant blessing that God gives his disciples when we show grace to sinners. He's gracious to the gracious, generous to the generous, pouring a full measure of blessing right into our lap. Sometimes this happens in the present life as God causes his people to prosper. Legendary example of measure for measure comes from the life of a poor Scottish farmer named Fleming It's not only a good illustration of what Jesus is talking about, it's also one of those interesting quirks of history. One day the farmer hears a cry for help coming from a nearby bog. They have those in Scotland. And there mired to his waist in the black muck of the bog is a terrified boy screaming and struggling to free himself. Fleming saved the boy from what would have been a slow and terrifying death. And the next day, a a fancy carriage pulls up to the Scotsman's humble dwelling, 
and an elegantly dressed nobleman steps out, introduced himself as the father of the boy that Fleming had saved. He says, I want to repay you. You saved my son's life. Fleming refused the offer, but at that moment, his own son came to the door. Is that your son? The nobleman asked. Let me take him and give him a good education. If the lad is anything like his father, he'll grow to a man that you can be proud of. In time, the farmer's son graduated from St. Mary's Hospital Medical School in London, and he later became better known throughout the world as Sir Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin. Many years later, when the nobleman's son was stricken with pneumonia, his life was saved by the drug that Fleming discovered. That boy who had the pneumonia, who was saved by the penicillin, he became a famous man too. His name was Winston Churchill. History is just a fun thing, isn't it? People say, what goes around comes around. Jesus put it a different way. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Whether we receive a full measure now or not, we will receive it later when we enter the measureless joy of heaven. We can never outgive God, who does far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Well, far from having a condemning spirit, Jesus was forgiving and he was giving. He showed mercy to sinners by offering them the gift of his very own life. And so in his warnings not to be judgmental and in his command to be generous, Jesus is really telling his disciples to be like him. This seems to be the point of the verses that follow. After telling his disciples that it would be measure for measure, Jesus also tells them a parable. Verse 39, he spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into the pit? The meaning of the parable as Luke repeats it, is fairly obvious. We need to be careful whom we choose to follow. If you're following a blind man, that's going to get you into some trouble. If we follow the wrong leader, then there is the danger that we're going to fall into a ditch. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Well, obviously not. They have the same disability, and thus they both need to see where they are going, but neither can And so they will, sooner or later, have some kind of mishap, in this case, fall into a pit. That happens from time to time in the city where street workers sometimes leave potholes and and ditches and manholes unguarded. Blind people face real danger. Same thing can happen spiritually. Some scholars think that when Jesus spoke of the blind leading the blind, he was referring specifically to the Pharisees. That certainly might be the case. 
Certainly what he says applied to them. The Pharisees could not see the truth about grace and therefore they led people down into the pit of legalism. That's why Jesus had so many conflicts with them. Elsewhere, Jesus does call them blind guides, but he says nothing about the Pharisees here specifically, and the principle has a wider application. Apart from the enlightening work of God's Spirit, we are spiritually blind. If we follow teachers who are equally blind, we will end up in the ditch. This is the problem with following Cult leaders who deny the deity of Christ or radio personalities who tell their listeners to leave the church. Theologians who add works to faith as the basis of our standing before God. They are all blind guides. They all lead to destruction. The parable of the blind leading the blind warns us to be careful who we are to follow There's also a warning there to be careful who we lead. If we teach others, we are responsible for where we take them. In order to lead, we have to be able to see. We need to see the Bible as the perfect truth of God's word. We need to see the majesty of God and his awesome power. We need to see the sinfulness of our sin and our desperate need. For mercy, we need to see Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. We need to see how the Spirit works to bring about spiritual change. Only then can we lead our children. Only then can we lead a church. Only then can we lead our brothers and sisters. Only then can we lead those in the world. Otherwise, we will lead people astray. Jesus says in verse 40, a pupil is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. The point of this general principle, which Jesus taught in a variety of contexts, is like teacher, like student. In those days, and it's not much different today, the way people learned was by spending time with wise teachers. The more time they spent with them, the more their lives would be patterned after their teacher. It's basic to any form of discipleship. The teacher and the student have a relationship in which the student, to greater or lesser degree, becomes more like the teacher. And so, obviously, it's very important to choose the right teacher. A beginning student could never hope to rise above the wisdom of his teacher in spiritual things. That would be the height of arrogance. The most that he could hope for would become to become a little bit more like his teacher, and he would only reach that goal when he is fully trained. And therefore, it was crucial as it still is, to choose the right teacher, the right spiritual guide. When a disciple chose which master he wanted to follow, he was choosing what kind of person he would become. You understand, of course, that Jesus wasn't the only one with disciples. 
What was going on between Jesus and his disciples was something very common. This was the first century equivalent of grad school. John the Baptist had his disciples. Some of them became Jesus' disciples. Rabbis all over Israel would gather younger men about them, their disciples, and they would train them, and the disciples would learn. Why does Jesus say all this here? The general meaning of these two proverbs is fairly clear, but how do they relate to the verses that come before and after, verses that deal with exercising proper judgment? Maybe Luke has simply given us a list summarizing things that Jesus said in his sermon, and we're not supposed to put them together. I don't think that's the case. Luke was very deliberate in how he constructed his gospel. Maybe Jesus was speaking here about one specific kind of judgment, good judgment, in choosing which teachers to follow. Whatever the precise connection may be, Jesus is calling his disciples to be like him. Remember the context. He's speaking to the disciples as their teacher, and so he's talking about their relationship with him. What is the best way for someone who is spiritually blind to keep from falling into the pit of destruction? The best way is to follow Jesus Christ, who has infinitely perfect vision and never leads anyone astray who is the best teacher for anyone to emulate. It is Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, who is perfect in righteousness. The obvious practical application is to follow Christ by faith. Let him lead you through life. He always knows the way. Listen to what he says about proper judgment And about not being judgmental. And then imitate him in those things. Follow his example by showing forgiveness. To follow Jesus is to become like Jesus. As he transforms our lives to the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus finished what he had to say about judgment with this very famous illustration. Back in verses 37 and 38, he warned his disciples that they would be judged by the same standard, the same measure they used to judge others. In verses 39 and 40, he warned them about the pitfalls of spiritual blindness. And now in verses 41 and 42, we see something a little bit different. The danger is different, but it involves both bad judgment and bad eyesight. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Here the problem is not that the person can't see at all, but that he can't see as well as he thinks he can. He thinks he can see so clearly that he can 
pick out the speck from someone else's eye, and yet somehow he manages to overlook this telephone pole sticking out of his own eye. Jesus was using a comic exaggeration to make his point. A speck is just a tiny little splinter of wood or straw. A log is the main beam of a building, not just a two-by-four, one of the major pillars that hold up the roof. The whole picture is so absurd that it would be laughable if it were not so common. How often we see this. The very person who criticizes other people is guilty themselves of the most obvious sins of all. This, I was reminded of this not too long ago when Fran and I moved from Denver out to Michigan to serve at the church there. I sinned. I went a little bit too long getting the registration of my car transferred from Colorado to Michigan. And so, you know, still had the Colorado plates on the car. And as I was parking at the church one morning, a man came and confronted me about it. And was quite angry. Struck me as a little strange. He was right, but I didn't think it was something to get quite that upset over. I told one of my colleagues about the encounter a little while later, a few days later, and he just shook his head because apparently this man who had come to speak to me about this had been being dealt with by the elders and the pastoral staff of the church because although he professed Christ and although he was a member of the church, he had begun living with someone outside of marriage. Now, I should have gotten the registration changed. <laughs> Speck and log. The word Jesus used for this common failing is hypocrisy. We are in danger of committing this great sin whenever we see, fail to see ourselves as we really are. Pretending that we are not selfish, greedy, proud, lustful, or guilty of other log-sized sins. We're in danger of hypocrisy when we say that someone else has a problem. And for some reason, we never recognize our own. We're also hypocrites when we minimize our sin, pretending that it's smaller than it actually is. Whether we see it or not, our lust is adulterous. Our words are treacherous. Our anger is murderous. 
when we examine our hearts, we always need to remember that our depravity is like something in the rearview mirror of a car. Objects are larger than they may appear. Our sin is worse than we think it is. Many of the sins we think are splinters are really logs. We're also guilty of hypocrisy when we overestimate our ability to deal with other people's sin, when we try to confront their sin before we deal with our own. It's tempting to spend less time in private confession of sin than we spend time thinking and talking about what's wrong with other people. A large part of our problem with logs and splinters is our sense of proportion. We're more concerned about someone else's minor issues than we are with our own major iniquities. But there is also a problem with our priorities. We have the nerve to try to straighten out other people before we've done business with God in regard to our own sin. Like a lot of other things in life, we get this backwards quite a bit. Of course, there is a place for confronting sin in others, for the role of coming alongside someone and seeking to call them to repentance, for giving constructive spiritual criticism, I guess we could call it, especially within the body of Christ. Jesus does not say that we should not ever help anyone else who has a spiritual problem. But we are told in Scripture how to do that. We are to do it without any sense of self-righteousness. We are to do it in humility and gentleness, seeking to restore rather than to condemn. He assumes that there are times when we are called to remove someone else's speck, but we should be slow to try to straighten other people out. We need to do first things first. We need to haul away the lumber out of our own eye before we remove any splinters from anyone else. Nor does this mean that we have to be at a place of perfect sanctification before we can give people spiritual aid. That's not the case either. Or no one would ever help anyone. But it does mean that we have to confess our own sins before we can ever hope to move anyone else to repentance. And it does mean that our spirit ought to be one which recognizes the issues that we ourselves are struggling with. That I'm not someone who comes as the guy who has it all together. And you poor, dirty, rotten sinners better listen to me because I've got it figured out. Trust me, I don't. Neither do you. We're all in this together. And so there is a place for coming to a brother and sister and seeking to aid them, but not as one who has it figured out. As one who's going through the same struggles, coming alongside of a person, saying, come on, I'll walk with you. Let me try to help you in this. And if you see anything in my life, brother and sister, come help me with that. 
and we'll move on together. Cyril of Alexandria said, whoever therefore is guided by good sense does not look at the sins of others, does not busy himself about the faults of his neighbors, but closely reviews his own misdoings. It's only when our hearts have been broken by our own sin that we will have the humble grace to seek to aid others to repentance. One way to see ourselves as we really are is simply to ask people who know us well what timber they see sticking out of our eyes. But the most important thing is to follow Jesus, sticking closely to his example, living by his amazing, exorbitant, generous grace. Jesus sees us as we really are down to the last speck. Because he is without sin, he is able to judge us perfectly with righteous clarity. But he does not condemn us. Which is an amazing thing. He does not condemn us. If we understood how heinous our sin is, I don't think we'd be able to comprehend the level of grace that is necessary to cover that sin. It's beyond anything we can imagine. Provided we come to him in faith, trusting in the sacrifice that he paid for our sin on the cross. Desirous of turning from our sin. He does not condemn us. With the help of his 2020 vision, we see both our sin and his forgiveness. And when we see that, then perhaps we can begin to see other people the way that Jesus sees them. Through the eyes of his grace, And then we can be conduits of that grace. As together we walk toward him. And finally see him. When none of this will matter anymore. Because our sin will be done. What a great day that will be. Until then. Let's be known for grace. Father, make it so. Make it so. Father, the things that we've been talking about this morning are things that can seem impossible. I know, Father, as I look at my own heart, I do not see the things that need to be there. I see a lot that ought not be there. Father, I need you to change me. We all do. Make us people of grace rather than people of judgment. Make us those, Father, who are 
ready and willing not to condemn, but to point people toward the source of all grace, which is Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we ask this. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.